Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 154, What Games Attract Retailers and Distributors. Presented by Brian Dalrymple, Jason Walters, and Melissa Lewis-Gentry. So, uh, hi everybody, welcome uh, to uh, uh, Why Games Attract Retailers and Distributors. Uh, my name is Brian Dalrymple. Uh, I am the owner of the Adventure Game Store in Dragon's Lair, which is a retail store in South Florida. Uh, I've also worked at, at every level in the industry. Uh, retail, I've worked as a dis- with a distributor uh, for three years, uh, and I currently have my own small publishing company that just got done running its first Kickstarter this year. Uh, and I've, for a number of years I've worked in layout, graphic design, editing, writing, that sort of thing. I'm also active in the Industry Association, GAMMA, the Game Manufacturers Association, where I sit on the board of directors. Uh, my name is Jason Walters. I'm the general manager of Indie Press Revolution, a distributorship that uh, is specifically for small press role-playing games. Uh, I'm also a publisher of role-playing games. Uh, and I work retail at a lot of conventions and trade shows, though not brick and mortar. Uh, and my name is Melissa Lewis Gentry. I am the business manager and a blah amount of corporate officers at uh, Modern Myths Inc., which is a retail store that's been open, a uh, game store, that, game and comic store that's been open for 15 years now. Um, we have two locations, one in New York, one in Massachusetts. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, I exist on the internet as well. So. <laughs> So do we have uh, here we have, uh, publishers, designers? Can we get uh, can yes. a show of hands? Uh, who's here that with who's a designer? Most of us publishers. People that have not raised their hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you do? Uh, well, I'm here to find out what all this is about. It's my first time. My nephew goes to all these. His name is Adam Fisher. Uses Shadow Song. He wants me to help him get his games published. Uh-huh. So okay. So, so I told him I would take a shot at it. <laughs> I I've been uh, in retail and, and business industry since I was sixteen. Awesome. So that's uh, forty four years. So you're a business development consultant, not just a family member, right? For Adam, that's what I can call myself. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. Shall we lead off with crowdfunding? Uh, all right, so yeah, we, we have a, a number of points that we, we, we talked about here. We kind of we're, we're going to focus in on, uh, on a few. And we're going to start with uh, the impact of crowdfunding on a retailer's 
for distributors' decision uh, about whether to bring in a game, how many of the game to bring in, that sort of thing. I, I could begin on this one. Mark. Now again, for those of you designing, say, uh, family games or board games or card games that are not role-playing games, my knowledge base is pretty specific to, to role-playing games, but it can be extrapolated to other things. Um, so the real key question with any Kickstarter project is, has the person made something, a, a successful one? Has the person already found pretty much everyone that's ever going to want to have this game? Or are there a lot more people that are going to want to have this game? And this is always something you ask yourself when you run one of these projects. And, and it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to answer. However, as a general rule, and please comment, guys, I think a very successful Kickstarter project, one that has thousands of backers, typically there's more people that are going to want it. Um, typically, if uh, a, pa a project only has a few hundred backers, possibly a sign when you're, when you're a distributor or retailer, not that many other people are going to want it. And now these, sometimes that's not true. You know, I mean, I mean it's not 100%, but it's a general guideline. So kind of success breeds more success, yeah. what do you say? Um, I like crowdfunding. Um, I support crowdfunding. I run projects on crowdfunding as a distributor. I watch crowdfunding um, and promote it when I see something I like uh, through social media. Um, I think it's, it's been a huge boom, um, at least for role-playing games, uh, which I think were not on their way to the dustbin of history, but they seemed, it seemed to be on their way down. And with crowdfunding, suddenly thousands of projects are in existence that would have never, never happened, probably. Um, I would say, in, at my place, half? the things we sell have been crowdfunded, maybe more. And it's kind of hard to tell because you have a really successful crowdfunding project like 7C by John Wick Presents where they raised a million dollars. And they're still, you know, years later, they're still releasing products based on that initial, you know, in capital investment. Um, same thing for Evil Hat Games who, I don't know the amount, it was a lot. Right? Many, many zeros. Many zeros. <laughs> and that was even farther back. That was maybe four or five years ago now. But they managed to spin that out to where I think there's probably some capital from that still going into projects <coughs> four or five years later along with, with, with sales. So uh, I, I fall into the category of, uh, of crowdfunding is a very good thing. Go do it. Um, it does not, as far as I know, scare at this point. This wasn't true five years ago, but at this point, scare distribution away. Can I be doom and gloom, the opposite? Go for it. Yay! Um, so uh, generally, if I hear a game has um, uh, had a Kickstarter, uh, uh, it stops me and makes me pause before I consider buying it for the store. Because one, there's already been an audience captured. Two, uh, the amount of colossal uh, distribution and getting your games to backer mistakes that have happened in the industry has made me really gun shy. Um, you know, there are, um, and, and Brian and I are doing a, a Kickstarter uh, panel later on today, so I don't want to get too far into like all the do's and don'ts because we're going to go over that later. But um, uh, one of the things, um, let's say you've already Kickstarter, Kickstarted and I didn't get in on the Kickstarter but I want to see if I have your game to the store. Um, often, I'll send an email or I'll talk to the designer and say, what are your plans for distribution? 
And if they say things, yeah, I'd really like to distribute my game, um, <laughs> that is going to make me be like, good luck with that. <laughs> because um, setting up channel distribution channels and setting all that up is, is a big job. Um, and some distributors are easy to work with, but not all are. People are like, yeah, I need to find a distributor. I'm like, oh. Yeah, that's, that's probably a sign they haven't looked yeah. too hard into it. There are many, there are many distributors, and, and while there are exceptions, and some distributors are exclusive yeah. on some things, generally the more you can convince to take your stuff, the better off you are. Uh, exclusivity contracts with distributors, unless you are Fantasy Flight or Asmodee, and even if you're Fantasy Flight or Asmodee, retailers are going to be like, we don't like exclusivity contracts. We want to be able to shop the market. We also want it to be that when your product sells out at one distributor and we have customers that really, really want it, um, that we can get it for them. And, and that happens if there is, uh, if the more places your game is in, the more likely we can get it to that customer who wants it. Um, I mean, and that's true for, that's a re one of the main reason you want to be in retail. The more places your game is accessible for people on a whim to purchase it versus as forethought online, uh, the more you can capitalize on that impulse purchase uh, and availability, the more overall sales and long trail sales that you're going to have. Um, yeah, kind of yeah, just, please, just yeah. getting back to the crowdfunding thing real quick, I yeah. a couple of things. So uh, my store is a, is a, a super backer on Kickstarter. Uh, so at this point, we've, we've backed, I think, somewhere in range about 140 different projects. Uh, so we're not shy about backing stuff. Uh, a while, a few Metatopias ago, I made a promise that if, uh, if somebody came to me with a crowdfunded project here at the show and let me know about it and told me that they wanted to work with, with me uh, in structuring the thing in a way that would be friendly to retailers, that I would back it. Uh, so I backed 103 projects. <laughs> you backed my last one. Yes. So uh, we back a lot of stuff. Uh, when I'm placing orders for the shop on stuff that I did not back, uh, I generally will bring in less of something that was crowdfunded. Even if, even if I make the decision to bring it in, I, usually I wind up bringing in less. And like uh, Jason said, the, the, the more successful a Kickstarter is, or a crowdfunding project is, uh, the more likely I'm going to think that there's like a longer tail uh, to that that I, can, uh, that I can capture because for the most part, crowdfunding products are only open for 30 days, although that has changed a lot uh, with the advent of backer kit and uh, post-campaign uh, stuff. Having run my own uh, uh, Kickstarter this year, uh, we have raised close, I think over a third more uh, in post-campaign pledges through backer kit. Uh, than we did on the initial run. Really? So, oh yeah. Uh, so we raised uh, twenty-three thousand in the initial, and we've raised almost twelve thousand since. So yes, having them actually lost. Uh, wow. But that, that having been said, I think there are ways to constructively and helpfully include retailers, at the very least, if not dist distributors, in your crowdfunding project. That's something that we'll talk about at the panel later on today. Uh, but in general, from the distributor's point of view. And from many retailers' points of view, they're going to pay less attention uh, and quite possibly order less of something that has gone up on, on the crowdfunding. Just because they figure that a certain percentage of the market, your most enthusiastic percentage, uh, has, 
probably already been filled. There, there'd be an exception I've seen happen. There are most certainly exceptions. Uh, which is if that enthusiastic crowd takes the game and and runs with it and runs off and like if you have ten friends that are gamers, one might back something, and they go and they play it and everyone goes, oh yeah, I really want that. So it it it's it's not hard and fast. I find that the exceptions are more in the RPG market than they are in the Which board card game. Sure. Yeah. All I really know about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Jason had a good point about uh, the, uh, uh, a very successful Kickstarter launching an entire line yeah. and products flowing out from that over the course of months or even years after the fact. Please do uh, that. Versus, that. Yeah, versus, <laughs> versus going back for every single thing that yeah. you were trying to add on. Yeah, there is, there is a, a difference in strategy between crowdfunding your company essentially, saying, hey, I have this whole series of wonderful things I'm going to do. They're going to be great, and they're going to come out over a period of years. Get in on it. You'll get one of every one as I make it. Uh, and saying, I'm, I'm doing this one thing. I'm making a game. Um, it's, but on the other hand, that's, that's a big commitment. It's also, um, when, like, when John Wick did that, or um, for Fate, that, uh, they had an established player base and previously released yes. products that showed their quality. You can't launch a whole company out of your nowhere. first game. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask one question? So, uh, Brian, right? Yes. Yeah. When you said you're backing Kickstarters, uh, are you backing basically at a retailer level? I, okay, so if there's a retailer level allowed to me and it is well constructed and beneficial to me, I will back at that retailer level. Uh, if there's not one, and, and again, we'll get into best practices in the, in the talk later on today about how you can put one together yeah, that's so effective. Talk about. Uh, uh, that's at 2 o'clock. That's going to be yeah. in Concord upstairs. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I've backed both ways. I've, I've backed uh, on, on well-crafted retailer tiers when the publisher kind of knows what size store I am uh, and has got something that's a good fit for me. Uh, and in cases where that hasn't happened, I've come in and uh, backed as uh, just as, as a, at the consumer level, or I've contacted in some cases the publisher and said, "Hi, you know, you don't have a level that's good for me, but how about you either put one together, or I I come in and back you now and we work it out on the tail end." That's all stuff that can be done. Okay, thank you. Should we move on yeah. to? Uh, Sorry, can I just ask a clarification? Sure. You were talking about like single game versus long mm -hmm. long tail. I didn't understand which one you thought was the better. It, it, it depends. I, I have never, I, I have my own small publishing company. I've never tried the whole, um, I want you to back five years of what I'm going to do. Right. Because I'm personally, as a publisher, kind of erratic. <laughs> and I, I really think in terms of, oh, what are we going to do next? And it's something often different from what I did last time. So um, in the case of John Wick Presents and Evil Hat Productions, they had a very long-term vision of what they want to do for many years. Um, they already had fan bases, and they laid out, and there's probably some other examples I'm aware of, they laid out in detail, this is what our production schedule is going to look like, this is what we're going to do, this is what you're going to be getting for years. Let's, um, let's talk about Reaper Bones, um, because that, sure. talk, about, uh, talk about a Kickstarter that changed the market. Um, so, I mean, uh, I mean, before then, um, are you familiar with Reaper? I'm not. Okay, so they're a miniature company that had been making fantasy miniatures for years, mostly metal fantasy miniatures, and they launched this Kickstarter for Bones, which were an injected molded plastic miniature, and it was something like, I don't know, what was it, 300 miniatures for like 150 bucks? Like, it was insane. 
and they it was like one of the first multi-million dollar Kickstarters where and it just broke everyone's brain. Um, and they basically their company went from small like I mean a well-respected metal miniature company to being a juggernaut in the industry, except they didn't set up their distribution channel. Right. They like I remember what was it? It was at was it at Gamma or was that it was a, at a, a one of the comp, one of the professional development conferences? They had a panel about what they're and they're like they said they're like we want to apologize to the distributors, the retailers. We're really bad at that whole part of this whole business. We're great at the, and they're fa they're wonderful people. They make a fantastic product that is at an amazing price point that's profitable for them and attractive to customers, but. Their whole infrastructure, they, boom, created a company, like, quadrupled more than that, the size of their business. It's huge, yeah. with, Without, like, that wasn't their plan. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> um, and uh, building the infrastructure of getting through distribution is one that the distributors um, dropped them. Uh, all the distributors had dropped them I, right I before uh, uh, Bones 3. Uh, Alliance has grudgingly picked them back up uh, for the Bones 3 wave, and then that's it. Um, you have to get direct from them now. So I, I, I can get in a little bit more to kind of like the background for that. Right? Yeah. So we carried a lot of Reaper before they started running the Bones stuff. Yeah. And, uh, Reaper was probably the, the uh, most pervasive line of fantasy miniatures and some other uh, different genre miniatures. They could have the shop, they were all made in metal, uh, uh, which was, uh, was a, a tin-zinc mixture used to be like a, a, a tin lead mixture back, back in the day. Uh, and the price of tin was going up, 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 up. So they needed a new material and they discovered this bones material, which was great, but it could only be produced through a certain process. And the machinery for that process was incredibly expensive and at, at the time really only existed in China. Uh, so they experimented with this material and uh, it's lighter, it's a lot, lot cheaper to do stuff with. You still get the detail you can paint around to, but it's really nice stuff. Uh, and they were looking at the cost of having it done in China versus acquiring the machinery to do it here in the U.S. So the first Kickstarter was actually run to buy the machinery so that they could start producing it in Texas instead of getting it run in China. Uh, and then it later turned out that the molds for the machinery could only be made in China. So they ran a second Kickstarter for the mold-making process to be done so they could eventually bring everything over here. But what happened was they had all this extant metal material sitting on distributor shelves. Mm -hmm. And when this new, cheaper material started to come out, and initially flooding out straight to consumers, uh, the demand for a metal figure at $7 to $10 a piece uh, dropped way out because you could find the same figure in this new material for $2. Or $3. Oh, so you're saying it's not that they didn't have proper distribution set up; they actively harmed the distributors. In, they, in fact, that, that is that is actually yeah, that won't make you any friends. Distributors were like, "Well, what are we going to do with all of this metal?" Yeah. Uh, and Reaper's like, "Well, send it back to us, and we will we'll just melt it down, and we'll use it to make new figures in our in our metal line," which is what they did. But the demand for a metal figure at ten dollars, whether it's a new figure versus an old figure, is still going to be a pale in comparison to the, the material. So, what wound up happening was a whole bunch of people back then. When the new material did wind up eventually available through distributors, it did extremely well in my shop. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it did really well because all of a sudden you could buy miniature miniatures for gaming at the prices from 20 years ago, effectively, in the new material. 
Um, but it left a lot of, of bad taste in the consumer's mouth because they had all this excellent stuff that we didn't know exactly to do with. And they were also getting this stuff far after backers did, which is another thing we'll talk about about the uh, crowdfunding best practices, about timing of who gets what. This actually brings us next into our, our next topic, the yeah. three of us discussing pervasiveness. Yes. So um, if I could read off real quick, Please. I'll keep it brief. Um, it's a huge temptation when you see that a lot of people like a thing and you realize the thing has flaws to say, I could make that thing better. I have better ideas for how that thing should be and people already like it. Sometimes that works, some, sometimes it, it, it doesn't. Um, if any of you are familiar with role-playing games, you'll probably see many, many examples of people deciding they could really do Dungeons and Dragons better. That they, they played it and it has some flaws that they've seen and they can correct that and make the next one. And, you know, it, it's worked a couple times. Um, but but it's, it's, a very, it's a big temptation I urge you not to get into without an awful lot of thought. Like a lot of thought and a lot of research. Better to try and do something really <coughs> different um, than to, to look at an existing base and say, ah, yeah, the kids just love collectible card games. I'm going to make a collectible card game, because obviously people like them. <laughs> yes, but no. So be very careful with that. Think about it very hard. Um, especially when it comes to, uh, right now the board and card game sphere is, uh, I would say, glutted with games. Um, uh, I get in maybe a tenth or less of what's out there catalogs and in the market and again that's just from the distributors that I have and there are certainly lots of games that exist in the market that uh, are in West Coast distributor because I'm a, a New England I'm a New England girl um, so and uh, uh, game availability is regional uh, and a lot of people don't necessarily realize that is that the games that are going to sell well and do well and that I have access to in my market is very different a, a little different than what Brian has, but certainly different than what Jason has in Nevada. Like, we, we got different worlds going on. Yeah, and even inside uh, my own market, yeah. uh, there, there's big differences between what will sell in my shop versus any of the other dozen shops in my area. Yeah. So, um, but let's say, for example, that you are making a zombie board game. The likelihood I am going to buy it is low. There's a lot of great zombie board games. There are a lot of there are a lot of great zombie board games. And since now so many of them have collectible figurines, people have gotten deeply invested in their zombie board games economically. So even example. if your zombie board game is so much better than that zombie board game that came out, you know, ten years ago that everyone knows about, the thing is, there's been like six zombie board games that come out a year. Um, and when a customer comes in, they're like, I want to buy a zombie game. We, uh, as retailers, want to give them two to four options the most. Because then after that analysis paralysis starts, anyone who's a game designer knows about analysis paralysis. Do we want that as a seller? No, we want clear choices. Um, and so if, um, if you're designing a game and you're designing a pirate game um, and a pirate, you realize that the, the week before your, your game is supposed to release that there was another pirate game, don't panic about that. Having two options is great. But if you're designing a theme that everyone has done before, great, I'm going to make a cooperative board game that's like uh, a fantasy game. 
right? Right? It's going to be like D&D, but a board game. No one's ever done that before. Do some Googling. <laughs> Guess what? Someone's done it. Um, and uh, so it's like you want to ride that middle line of you, like, being 100% unique and weird can detract. Uh, that, that can be, that's a double-edged sword. People like what's familiar. Um, uh, a recent, I, I love this, a recent study of, by Wizards of the Coast of what kind of characters that players save in the new character builder. The number one type of character was a human fighter. <laughs> Far and above and beyond. Number two character was an elf ranger. <laughs> right? Right? Um, uh, you know, we, like, as consumers, we want diversity to, sh then we go back to kind of what's familiar-ish and then maybe one thing off. So, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. tough. You get stuck with the, uh, you don't want to be different for difference sake, but yeah. you want to be different enough to stand out. There's a shortcut around this, which again, everything's 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 an engineering question. You know what I mean? Like, there is no there is no free unless you're one of these people that hits it lucky. Sometimes people bring out a game and it's just the the zeitgeist is right, and, and it just it's the right place, right time, right thing. But if, if you don't have that thing of luck, kind of a way to end run around this is the gimmick game. And there's been some very successful gimmick games, but humor is subjective, not objective. And something you find just hilarious, somebody else might find not funny or even offensive. But Hackmaster, what very successful take on D&D that's completely a gag. Uh, Red Dragon Inn, you still selling Red Dragon Inn, sure. guys? Yeah, Red Dragon Inn, it's, it's a D&D joke. So you can kind of run around this by making a parody game. But it's a dangerous gamble, because again, humor is subjective. Talk about humor is subjective. So Cards Against Humanity is a, a great one. Everyone wants to be the next Cards Against Humanity. Um, uh, so I was one of the first six retail stores that had a direct account with Cards Against Humanity. Uh, they specifically choked distribution to retail um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but then when they opened it up, they're like, hey, um, we want to open up game stores that um, you know are feminist, are pro-diversity, um, you have a podcast that talks about feminism all the time, you know, we're, uh, you know, the, I mean, we are like in the, we are the most hyper-liberal store in a hyper-liberal liberal state. But um, now, uh, you don't want to know how much Cards Against Humanity I have sitting on my shelf. It used to be we literally could not keep it in stock. I would buy a case of 100, it would be gone. Um, most board games in my store sell if they're new one to two in a month of a copy. Um, now we have lots of different games, so that's otherwise that would be tragic. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Cards Against Humanity has now fallen back into that because now they have flooded the distribution channels and everyone has it. Um, there will uh, and um, uh, who's aware of uh, a Cards Against Humanity like game? That's like one of like, you could probably just keep going down. Uh, and there are, um, when people now are pitching games and they're talking to me, they're like, so I'm making this card game. That's going to be Cards Against Humanity. Like, I'm like, blah, okay. Market saturated. Um, yeah. The, even the people that made Cards Against Humanity could never seem to make Cards Against Humanity. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so, 
uh, take a look at uh, their games that might still, on the consumer base wise, be incredibly popular. Things like that, where you're like, oh no, that's totally a popular game. Look at, you see all of these games that have it. If there's a ton of games that have come out in the market right now that are using a particular mechanic theme or that sort of thing, it might be too pervasive. Uh, you might want to shelve that for a couple of years and come back when people have forgotten because gamers have memories of goldfish. <laughs> I do. And I, I'm going to want to put stuff on my shelf yeah. that is just when it, I'm, I want the customer that walks into my shop to come in and see stuff that they haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah, right. Exactly. I want them to be able to come in and be like, oh, wow. You know, uh, even if it's something that is, that is pervasive and that's available in mass, you know, that, that it's at BNN, it's at Target. Yeah. Uh, but they'll come into my shop and say, I didn't know that there were six expansions for this game yeah. that we've been playing for a year or so. Or I didn't know, I didn't, haven't seen this one before. So I'll be looking for something that has kind of got that kind of it factor that I know is going to be able to uh, surprise somebody that wasn't talking to see something I'm, I'm sorry that we got here a little late. I didn't. I know you're obviously all real retailers, yes. um, indie stores. I didn't know if you had a specialty niche market and what your target audience was, because I'm trying to glean. We have a general market kind of audience. Um, and um, from going to market, if you get your information from going to forums, trade shows, or if you reps visiting you, yeah. do you deal with one exclusive one-stop vendor you know, to make your choices, because if all the stuff is flooding, like you say, you can't know everything. How can you play it? How can you recommend it? So I didn't know if you have niche markets or... I'm very niche market. They're not. Yeah. Um, but I would distrust anyone in tabletop gaming who came to you and said, I'm the guy. The only guy you need to talk to. <laughs> Sign this contract because I'm the only one. I'll do you deal you with the individual people mostly, that indie people? Or do you deal with well, publishers that I, are... I'm a, I'm a distributor. Okay. Of something very specific, of role-playing game books. So okay. I, I do with a lot of retailers and publishers, um, but we have no exclusivity contract at our company okay. because we don't believe in it. So it, and again, mostly distributors don't ask for that kind of thing. So distributors detail the stores too because they get to know the retailers well, and then they're able to get a gleam what's missing, what's not going on. A good distributor will send me an email that says, uh, oh, Melissa, uh, I know we, we didn't put this in the catalog. It's a brand new solicit, but I know you're going to want it in your store because it's this fantastic RPG accessory and you sell a boatload of RPGs, right? So they know your business they're, and their, their... Yeah, they're like, they're like you know, um, and we have, we get new, they're sales reps, so like some of them are good and some of them are good. Yeah. But, uh, like we have a new sales rep who's like, we had a, we had a ter terrible one, um, uh, but then he, he's like, he's like, looking at your sales history, I know that this pro company hasn't come out with products before, but I saw this one. We had a demo in here. It's really cool. You should check it out. Uh, that's a good salesperson. And does he leave a copy for you to demo? No, because, I mean, like, he's emailing, you know, probably his 40 accounts, you know, that sort of thing. That's but necessary. But if it's an RPG and there's a PDF up on Mids and Mortar that we can check out, Oh, the likelihood of us buying that it goes through the roof. Uh, perhaps we should say what that is. Bits and mortar? Yeah. Does so any, anyone know who, what bits and mortar is? Thank you, Dad. <laughs> um, you yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, so bits and mortar. Um, so Indie Press Revolution, which I run, uh, was uh, in part uh, founded by a team that included Fred Hicks, who later went on to create bits and mortar and to found Evil Hat Productions. So 
Uh, Bits and Mortar is a service you can subscribe to if you're a retailer. If it's a role-playing game, there might be some, it's just role-playing games, right? Yeah. If it's a role-playing game, uh, and it's something you would normally sell over the internet directly to the customer where they get the physical book shipped to them and they get the electronic copy. The electronic copy is, is put up in bits and mortar and the retailer can then download it uh, or rather give a code to an individual customer purchasing from their store. So they can buy the physical book and get the electronic copy. And it puts the brick and mortar retailer on the same level as an online retailer as far as being able to give the full package. So most publishers of role-playing games I don't know whether they're really big publishers participate. I don't know. Does um, the coast participate? Probably not. Boxy and um, Paizo do not. Do not. Um, but everyone kind of from the next tier down, <coughs> a lot of us participate and put things up there so that re the Rick and Martin retailers know they're on the same level with RPG Now or anyone like that. Um, so. the, the, the number one best thing that a publishing company can do to make it more likely that you're going to get retail sales of your game is to put that PDF up there early and say, okay to give PDF with confirmed pre-orders, right? And then yeah. we'll be like, we'll, we'll pre-sell the game, give you your PDF, and then you pick it up in the store, right? Because so, people like to support stores, and they're going to be hyped because they get that PDF whatever 10 days before you know, the actual physical copy is in their hand. If you're going with RPG books, which I don't, I don't, I don't know what uh, kind of games you guys y'all are des designing, but if you are going with uh, RPGs, like that is fantastic. That is a way that um, uh, gets also. So let's say I have uh, ten guaranteed pre-sales. Am I going to get ten copies? No, I'm going to get twenty copies. Um, if I have 10 customers who have said, oh, I can't wait for that to come in. Am I going to get 20 copies? No, customers are flaky. I'm going to get maybe 10 copies or more likely just a case of six and then see how it goes. Um, uh, those uh, confirmed pre-orders at retail stores usually cause retailers to double their stock. Um, yeah, sorry, I got excited. No, that's pretty <laughs> yes. Sorry, can you, oh. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, so that's, that worked great for RPGs, right? Yeah. Yeah. We all share an RPG focus uh, in our businesses, but we also carry lots of other things that aren't RPGs also. So uh, as far as, uh, let's talk about like a good distributor sales rep. Yeah. They are the exception, right? Yeah. There's a lot, most distributor sales reps uh, are calling you or you've got to like call them out, just tell them what you want. Here's a list of what came out to you this week, what do you want? Uh, at, when a distributor sales rep actually goes out of their way to say, you know what, this is really good, I'm recommending this to you, I will usually say, okay, wow, you never do that. So there must be something kind of special about this. I'll usually go in for something like that. But as far as where the information comes from, I know about these games way before my distributor is going to be getting into contact with me. Uh, I know about them from uh, trade shows, from open houses. I know about them from uh, Facebook groups uh, and from talking to publishers. From, there's, there's a wealth of material out there online that a retailer can go to and kind of has to go to to educate themselves about what they're going to want to be bringing in, especially with so much uh, product, especially non-RPG product being made overseas. Uh, it takes too much to get here on the boat, so you've got to have a solid idea of how many you're going to want. Uh, and because 
stores are notoriously not that great about getting pre-orders in on stuff. Uh, and if not everybody does, and it winds up being a lot of demand for something, stuff will be gone before you have the chance to get it. So I need to be, in, be very well informed about what I know I'm going to be bringing in. I need my numbers in early so that I can be guaranteed I'm going to have the product when it shows up. What about non-RPG well, that's what I'm speaking specifically about non-RPG games. About actually. traditional board games, yeah. games. Yeah, the stuff that gets made Family overseas, by and large, yes. Uh, yeah, RPGs are, are a little easier because, by and large, they do. Many of them are, are printed uh, in North America, uh, and the turnaround time is a little bit faster. Do you have game nights in your facilities? Yes, yes, we do. Every night actually is a game night for us, but we, we have some <laughs> specific Tuesdays nights off. for certain things. Take Tuesdays off. Tuesday is because we're a comic book store as well. Ah. Um, uh, we uh, have so much inventory of comics coming in, we can tell the gamers to go away. <laughs> question down here. How do distributors know whether they're saying, hey, this is a really good game? Do they make a personal decision? Or so, so usually that means that my rep has actually played it. It means the publisher, <laughs> it means that the publisher has actually uh, gone through the trouble of either sending uh, a copy out to them or a, a rep out to them to show, the, to show it to them on one of the... Because distributors, uh, a good distributor, will have like a regular play night set up for their sales staff so they can learn stuff like that. Or in many cases, the larger distributors hold open house events once a year where the distributor sales teams can sit in on and play and demo games as well. So they'll know, hey, this is really good. I know, that, I know it's really good because I, I played it. And it's similar to other stuff I know that you sell a lot of, Brian, so this might be a good fit for you. This isn't always easy to do as a distributor. I'll just throw that one out to play everything that you've accepted that's been submitted. Uh, but sorry, just an aside. Oh, uh, I would say that it's impossible to do as a, a distributor. <coughs> it's impossible to do as a retailer. I can't play every game that comes on my shelf as much as I would like to. I have to do things like payroll and like, like, like paperwork, inventory, inventory, inventory. all yeah. the time, uh, like, all the time. Apparently, like running a store or something like that is a lot of administrative work and not just playing games. Who would have thought? Like I said earlier, uh, there's way more games because of crowdfunding stuff like that coming up that have ever come out before. My my store just celebrated its 29th anniversary, yeah. so I can go back to a time in my early 20s when I could look around at the game shelf and see the hundreds of games that were on there and say I've played easily 80 percent of these. Now I walk into my shop and I'm like, I'm lucky if I've played like 10% of these games. Because in many cases, a lot of them are going to be really, really new. Uh, and, uh, and she wasn't kidding when she said that you know, there might be, in some cases, like 50 new games coming out in a week or 20 new games coming out in a week. And I've, got to, I've got to figure, you know, of those 20 new games, which like four or five I'm going to pull the trigger on this week based on what my, uh, what my budget is and yeah. what I think the demand is going to be. And that's where all these other factors come. Can I, can I touch on a, 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 a bet noir of ours? Sure. Right? Yours and mine. Packaging. I'd like to talk about packaging for a moment. Now, now you'll go into, I'm sure, a lot more depth about packaging for like board games and yeah. card games. Yeah. I'm going to talk about it from a, a distributor's perspective. So when you're a distributor, uh, you go out and you buy packing material that you use to ship things around in bulk, in standard sizes. Now. It's not that it's bad to make a, to make a product that is bizarre or a, a totally non-standard size or totally sticks out, but the distributor hasn't bought packaging for that. They bought whatever five to, to seven sizes of packaging they use to sort of package and ship everything. Um, so typically, distributors past a certain point are not happy to see your you know, the box that's this long and that, I, I, 
I've seen River River uh, Blasphemy. Yeah. Board game Blasphemy. It was like that long, and like that. Was, it was a neat, strange, weird product, but it didn't. It doesn't fit in anything. Sometimes we get books that they don't fit with physically. Their the person's been like, I know, I'm, I'm going to make a book this you know, this tall, that long, and we don't have any packaging really to easily ship it with anything else. You 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 figure it out, but it doesn't make you happy. And when something doesn't make you happy, you don't want to deal with it. So, be creative, but be creative within certain parameters that are easy to ship and easy to ship with other things. Um, and also, uh, packaging, if it's not a book, if it's something that's smaller that can be easily hooked up on grid wall by the retailers, they're going to like that a lot more than something they kind of have to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's small, they have to display it. You can't really display it. You can't really hang it up. Or, um, so with card games, so then you prefer one-part boxes as opposed to two-part boxes? So um, I prefer something that can be hung up. Mm -hmm. it, so one-part boxes that have the, um, yeah, the, thing, the yeah. sticky, sticky plastic. You're talking about as opposed to plastic transparent? Yeah. Two-part? Well, I well, just tend to think of two-part boxes as ones that you can't necessarily hang. Whereas one part boxes tend to have that little hook built in. Yeah, it's like a slide as yeah. to like that. Yeah. Both um, of these guys are surprisingly tolerant of those standard transparent plastic boxes that come from, from OBS that's from a one bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> you buy them. Yeah, we buy you them seem, tolerant. And curse the designer every time. It's like it's like, why? Why did you do this? It's like, oh, uh, there was um uh, there was a designer who I love dearly. Um, uh, who uh, I, I happen to live in an area where there's a lot of game designers. Uh, I live in the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. And so there was a designer who was in, and I kind of let my guard down a little bit. I didn't have customer tone on because I know this person pretty well. And I was shelving games while we were chatting, and I was like, God damn, son of a bitch designer put in this package. And he was like, I was about to do my next game in that package. I'm like, no, 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 you're fine. I love you. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, and then we talked a lot about packaging, about how. Um, let's say you're making a simple card game that's like uh, an indie story game or a card accessory for your RPG. And they're like, great, it's just these plastic, you'll, you'll see if you go to the vendor booth, which is my booth, full disclosure, buy stuff from me. Um, uh, but no, uh, you'll see that there are card, like there's a variety of card games which are top-notch, well-graphic design, stellar accessories that are using these plastic boxes which are the worst. <laughs> They're only a dollar each from from RPG now slash drive through RPG. Yeah. And you're having it print on demand, they put it in for a dollar each. You know, it's, it's a it's sports like, card box. Yeah, yeah, it's a sports card box. It's like you we as retailers will sell twice as much of your product if it's in a box with art on it. That can neatly stack on a shelf and that we can shrink wrap. Um, the the advantage of shrink wrap is that we can put stickers on things that doesn't damage the product. We like putting price tags on things. It's fact, we're legally required to for a lot of it. Um, we like putting security tags on things because unfortunately people steal. And if you don't shrink wrap your product and if it's not in a box and that sort of thing, we have to makeshift at the store and be like, what the hell do I do with this? And you know, make packaging. Can I touch on that for a moment? Yeah, please. So if you're doing a full color hardcover book and you're doing a print run, like not print on demand, but after offset print run, 500 or more thousands have it shrink wrapped. 
they only are going to charge you 10, 15, 20 cents more a book to shrink wrap it. Warehouses are dirty places. You know, assembly facilities, a distributorship for people stand around and count things and put them in boxes. They're, they're not hospital quality, really. And so when you get a product in, and you have to be, you know, we're careful, we work at it. But when you get a product in that's shrink wrapped, like, oh, great. You know, it's gonna be, it's gonna get to the retailers or, or to the individual customer, wherever, completely safely. It's gonna be all protected, no cover rub. That's something that happens in shipment. Our covers weirdly rub against each other and ink starts to come off. There's gonna be no cover scrapes because one tiny particle of sand got between two books. None of that. So shrink wrap is great. I could, I could add yeah. that just a little bit. If you are going to shrink wrap your book, and you could find a way to let us know on the retail end that you are shrink wrapping it to protect it from damage and not because there's some kind of insert in there, because I'm going to want to take the book out of the shrink wrap when it gets to my shop so my customer can go to the shelf, pull it out, and page through it. And if it's sitting there in the shrink wrap, it is less likely to sell because the customer cannot page through it. That's what I was just going to ask. Yes. Or, or yeah. we're going to crack one well, you, open yeah, at least crack open for a display. Yeah. But yes. yeah. Exactly. Question. So, as a designer, how do we help ourselves differentiate ourselves, from your perspective, from all the other stuff out there? Because you know, I've gone into lots of you know flags, looking at what they have, and you know, so everybody else is designing in a pretty standard size box, and for a while there, people were trying to do. You know, really bright colors to call attention. So now when you look at the shelves, if you haven't done marketing ahead of time, if you're hoping for the walking customer, it just looks like a candy store. And you know, so you just fall into this mix of everybody else's packaging. So I can understand why a designer wants to make their box look different because then when I walk in, I go, this all looks like standard size boxes. Ooh, what's that funny looking shape over there? Right, so, so how do we balance? Okay, so. I applaud you for going into your local shop to take yeah. a look. Yeah. Um, so, in addition to looking to see, you know, how your product would stand out, the the other perspective you can look at that from is, how is the store equipped to display my odd shaped thing? If my product is not going to be able to fit onto that shelf, <laughs> or if it's going to fit in a way where it would be hidden or stuck back behind somewhere or could easily fall back behind someplace, then then your difference hurts, right? So you've you've got to kind of approach it from from kind of both sides, right? You gotta kind of be like, all right, it has to be something that can fit on this shelf, or one of the shelves that I've seen in this store. It's got a funny way that they can kind of easily be displayed. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, bright colors are one of the things that you can do, and yeah, you go into my shop and it's like a rainbow, boom. Some shops aren't organized at all, and, you have, and you, you'll just get lost, right? So the better shops are going to be able to have a specific section, maybe divided up by genre or by type of game. And like Hopefully, they're going to have a helpful staff person that can point is like It's designed separately right. in display than our uh, more specialty sections. Like it, it, it's really going to depend. But yeah, that whole thing of like bookshelves are expensive. Like like even IKEA. Like like we like you're you know you're you can walk into most local game stores now and you can clock you're like oh that's a calyx that's a calyx calyxes are like the new thing because they're relatively inexpensive and you know what they fit board games except for some that don't go right? uh, if, you're, like, if your place? game box will not fit on a calyx shelf <laughs> rethink your box <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right, so you, i think you had a question yeah. what about uh point of purchase if it comes into impact that can be point of purchase do you even have floor space 
So if, assuming it's not counter space? Some, some stores will have some kind of counter space for that, but it's probably going to be very limited. I, right? I exactly. think so. Yeah. So, so again, just like with, with, uh, with the other stuff, you know, when your game comes out new, if the store is set up for it, they've probably got a nice new display rack or stuff that's been out. That depending on the, uh, the volume of product that's coming out at a given time, your product might stay faced out and exposed in a, in a, in a nice way and showcased in a nice way for a week or maybe two or three weeks if you get really lucky. But because stuff is coming out so quickly, it's going to eventually wind up going out, out to one of the other boxes, uh, one of the other shelves where it's going to go. Uh, the point of purchase display is even smaller, yeah. right? So it's there's less stuff that can be displayed there. It's going to be rotated out a lot more. Of quickly. course, right. I was right. thinking so, of floor stands. Right. Yeah. But, you may, but you may not. This is a big box store. You don't the retail space for that. So floor yeah. space, floor stands, um, demo tables, and yes. that sort of thing are great for the stores in the middle of our country, but not for the stores on the east and west coast. Because, I don't know if you do about property values. Right. Uh, <laughs> our store, my store is like, we would have loved to move like four times. Um, we are in a store that's much, much smaller than our sales support. But um, I went to look at uh, a store a hundred feet down the street, but just beyond the railroad tracks. Uh, so now technically in downtown, um, uh, and uh, rent was $15,000 a month. And if you want your rent to be 20% or less of your gross sales each month, uh, everyone needs to start board buying board games now. Like there's no way I could afford that. So uh, we don't have uh, demo tables out. Um, I have a game space, and I do demo nights, and I do demo things on our game space. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we like all those demo standees are going to be great for uh, any of the game stores in the Midwest where right. they have, you have know, space to put it in. ten thousand square feet. Bastards, <laughs> you know, it's like um, like those places are, are great. So it's like you got to pick your market uh, for that sort of thing. Thank you. We have uh, different display areas also based on game size, right? Yeah. So something that would be expected to be like a point of purchase sale type game, little card games, that sort of stuff. I've got a section in the store on top of one of my shelves where I've got all that stuff in one place. Uh, even if it should appropriately be associated with other games of that genre, it can't be because it'll get lost. Mm -hmm. uh, because this box is this big and all the other games are this big. And do you so, have video loops running of the different We have games? two TVs in the shop. Uh, we do run uh, reviews uh, and some content. There, there's, a, there's a new service that's coming out. Uh, Diced. Uh, I, guess, I guess there's more than one. There's, oh. there's Gamer TV. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, a couple, and, and I think actually that uh, Alliance is working on one. They just installed a television studio in their main uh, uh, office. I would say probably about 40% there, of stores have TVs. Yeah. Um, just because of the costs, um, and for us, like, okay, where's that TV going? On wall space that we uh -huh. could be hanging games, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and we hang almost floor to ceiling. Um, so, like, we don't have any TVs right now, um, mostly because, like, we would lose, uh, we would lose product space uh, mm -hmm. at this point. A, a lot of stores do have TVs, yeah. but there's not, like, a standardized place to go to to find these loops, right? And no store wants the same thing on going all the time, all the time, especially, God forbid, if it's got audio. 
because um, right. it's just driving nuts. Because <coughs> we're in there, you know, 12, 13 hours a day, and I can't listen to this anymore. As a, as a, as a, not really a counterpoint, but as an observation, you'll find most of the distributors you interact with are are somewhere strangely out of out of the way. Not really out of the way, but uh, for example, the largest distributorships in tabletop gaming are in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or at least maintain a presence in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where floor space is cheap and large. Uh, I'm in rural Nevada, where floor space is almost free. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So your distributors are not going to be in a major urban area. They're going to be somewhere where warehousing space is very inexpensive. So. Um, we are pretty much out of time. So I guess uh, if we could take like one more, one or two more questions, but it's 9.53. So. Yep, we've got time for just a couple more questions. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that bits and mortars are a great way to, to tell you that that's an RPG system you're going to be interested in. Right. Um, is there something comparable for tabletop games? And on the opposite side of the same question, what's a red flag that says we're just gonna we're gonna avoid this game entirely? Or sorry, from board games. They're from board and card games because it's not like um, uh, I mean having a, a downloadable rule book and a print and play available of the game. Um, I will not download the print and play myself um, because I am too busy for that. Sure. But. Um, I find that games that have those things available, open transparency with the players, um, you're going to build a bigger fan base. Uh, and the bigger the fan base you have, uh, the more likely uh, we're going to be stocking that game. Um, unfortunately, game like especially board and games, card games right now is totally a popularity contest. Uh, and the popularity contest is not necessarily based on how well designed your game is. Um, uh, but is this weird combination of who you got to demo the game, uh, who's heard about it, how pretty your art and your concept art is, um, and that X factor of who knows. So does some of the some of the bigger game companies do offer demo copies oh, yeah. uh, that you can get at a lower price point, so you can put those out into the shop. Uh, for the companies that aren't so big, I've had publishers, we, we have regular publisher visits. Uh, uh, a designer or publisher will come by the shop uh, pre-scheduled with plenty of time for us to promote it. Uh, not just, you know, hey, I'm going to be, I'm in town for the day. Can I come in and demo tonight? No, we're not doing board games tonight. Uh, but if, if I have enough time to, to uh, promote it, uh, we've had a couple of small press companies come in uh, with copies of their games that they've, that they've brought. Sometimes I've got their stuff on the shelf. Sometimes they're so small I haven't even heard of them. And they'll bring the stuff, and I'll buy stuff from them when the night is over. But those have been very successful uh, in moving product out, especially on that night and also afterwards. People, uh, people feel that the publisher also has a relationship with the store. I'd also throw out there that, and I'm sorry, sir, just, just a sec, that videos of your game on YouTube or whatever being played and people enjoying it and seeing how it's played can't hurt. Sure. Um, Often help. Uh, if you have a sell sheet um, that you are not the sell sheet to publishers, but the post-published sell sheet to right. uh, uh, distributors and uh, retailers, um, if you have a fantastic how to play video and you post that link on that sell sheet, that would be great. Even if you have it on your website, so that way we can say this new game is in, here's the how to play video, right? Like that's lovely. Suggestions because most of the games that are coming out are themed games. Yeah. So what about non-themed abstracts? I don't car carry them. We do fine with them. So yeah. it really all depends on the shop. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Locus, Zendo, stuff like that. Uh, 
Well, so I live in my own strange little world. Well, so, there, you know, so I've designed an abstract, so there's no theme to it. I can't paste one on there, haven't been able to think of one. And so the challenge that I face is, if I go to a Kickstarter, probably not going to do very well because it's run over by all the themed games. So trying to figure out you know, how to hit my target market and you know, the flags and distributors, how, how are they going to be interested? Because they just sell slow. I would guess, is there, is there a fairly distinct community of people that like this particular thing? Online, Facebook, that talk about it? Abstract games? Yeah, specifically. Yeah, so I started an abstract game group on Facebook and a yeah. board game cafe group on Facebook. And, you know, but it, they're, they're small, you know, 800. I, 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 yeah. I think with games like that, people have to play them, be exposed to them, that sort of thing. So I recommend, you know, open houses, game a trade show, uh, places where you can put it in front of uh, and that's, that those are the kind of games where components are everything. If there's a nice piece feel, if there is uh, beautiful design to the pieces, um, like take TAC. TAC is an abstract game, uh, uh, but it's beautiful. The fact, and then it was also linked to Patrick Rothfuss, you know, <laughs> that, you know that, like that's gonna uh, shoot it through. And like, okay, so TAC and Blockus are ones that uh, we have. <coughs> Blockus is one brightly colored pieces that kids are into, right? Um, uh, you, you, if you're not gonna go with a theme, if you're gonna stay abstract, like number nine is actually, you're right, it's one I have uh, that was just a Z-Man game uh, that came out. There are some abstract games, but for them, your graphic design and your art and your component pieces are literally what's gonna sell your game. Also, a small, incredibly enthusiastic fan community is going to beat a large, somewhat indifferent fan community any time. So cult, I'd say cultivate that small community as, uh, in, in as much depth as you can. I was just wondering um, where I could go for more information about distributors specifically, um, getting into distribution, and what like, reference you guys might have for that. I'll give you my card. And, and even if it's not the sort of thing I distribute, I'll tell you more. I've got mine here as well. Yeah. If, if you'd like it, uh, I, I can send out a list of distributors and the kind of the process. Because again, normally when we give this talk, we talk about the processes of, of, of you know how distributors uh, get stuff, and how to get in. And this was kind of more about you know kind of reasons why we we, we, we picked it. But, uh, my business card is at my register. Yeah, I can tell uh, you. In my store in Massachusetts. Right now. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah.